Okay, let's uh, turn to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to look at one verse or two verses in chapter 3 just for a few minutes. And then we'll uh, move into chapter 4. So in chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sin, verse 15, it says, I will put enmity between you, he's speaking uh, to the woman, uh, Adam and Eve, between you and the woman, uh, he's talking about the serpent here, and between your seed and her seed. And her seed shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And that's the promise that Christ would come, be born the seed of Eve, seed of the woman, and he would bruise the serpent's head. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception, or your pregnancy. This is because of the sin, because of the fall of man. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And this is what I want to show you. Your desire shall be for your husband, this is the woman, or your desire shall be toward your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, most of the English translations, if not all of them, translate this as he shall rule over you. And that has left the door wide open for the abuse of men regarding women, and in particular, the husband abusing his wife. And there is this attitude, you see it in the world, you see it with a lot of people, where the husband, he's the one that has control, he's the one that rules the house, he's the one that rules over the wife, and so on and so forth. And there is to be, as we know in the Bible, a submission from the woman. Uh, she's to submit to the husband, and then you have the husband supposed to submit to Christ. But... Charles Hahn said this should read this way, and he shall rule in you. And there is an interlinear, interlinear that I've been using. Uh, it's a scripture analyzer, and it also translates this verse that he, meaning the husband, shall rule in you, meaning uh, the wife. And he's talking, I believe, about a dominion or something in the womb. Remember what we talked about whenever Adam was created, he created him both male and female. Then whenever he caused, God caused the sleep to fall upon Eve, there was something taken out of Adam that no longer was there and was put in the wife. And women have certain characteristics and certain qualities, the nurturing ability and so forth, that for the most part is missing in men. So here there is a dominion, he shall rule in you. It's not has nothing to do with the man's to tell the wife what to do. This is not talking about that at all. It's talking about a place in her in her it's talking about something in the very core of her character that is to be ruled in by the man. And that is some place there that the woman, if this is done correctly, will respond to the man and will be satisfied uh, in that, in the relationship, because of the man ruling in the wife the correct way. And as I said, there have been many, many, many abuses of this. 
And Charles Hahn said that this can evoke fear in the woman or great delight in the woman based really upon how the man is giving himself to her, to the wife, how he is ruling in her. And in Galatians, let's turn there real quick. No, excuse me, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. So there is, I believe, this states this here, but even if it wasn't stated per se in that verse, there still is this man rule in the woman. There, there is something that is missing in the woman that the man is to give her so that this area in her can be something of great delight to her if, if the man is you know, walking with God and doing what he should do. Or it can be a fearful thing. And, and you see this, I believe, this whole women's movement has come out forth from the abuse of the man rule in the woman. And they'll, they want, they'll never submit to a man, they say. I don't want anything to do with, with men. I'm going to you know, wear the pants in the family. I'm going to be the one who makes the, the decisions. And I'll never let a man rule over me. And I have heard that not too long ago. Someone say that. In Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. So that's, you know, what the Lord says through Paul to the wives. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Now, this is a command. Husbands, love your wives. And that's the word agapeo. Uh, no. Husbands, love. That would be agape. One's the noun, one's the verb. And that's, I believe, here in the command form. So the Lord commands the husband to be dedicated to the wife. You know, not to rule her with an iron fist. Not to tell her every little thing she, she must do and, you know, be overbearing. Let me ask you this. How is Jesus Christ to you? How does the Lord treat you? Does he treat you with love? Is, is Jesus dedicated to you? Is he gentle with you? Is he kind to you? Well, see, these are the characteristics that are be, to be in the man, and those characteristics in some measure, should be what comes out to the wife. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So there is in the man this possibility of moving in the characteristics of the Lord for his own benefit and also for the benefit of the wife. So that the wife, what she becomes in God, will strongly be determined by this man rule in her. How the husband has ruled in her life. And I don't mean that in a domineering way. I mean in the character of Christ. How he does that. That will either make her something wonderful, something good... Uh, as far as 
the outcome, or uh, it can cause great damage and problems for both of them. And I remember hearing Charles Hahn say that this years, ago, years and years ago. He said, men, if you don't like your wives, look in the mirror. And that's what he was talking about. They become, to a large degree, what has happened in that man role thing in the wife. So you can have a, a woman who's very bitter toward her husband, bitter toward other people, and, and so forth. I mean, this can move in many, many different ways in her life. So he goes on here, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That, or for the reason, that he might sanctify and cleanse her. See, so there is, there is something that happens to the bride of Christ through the Christ character being given to them. See, there's a washing there is a setting aside, a sanctifying, and cleansing. All different things, uh, all these different things uh, occur in the church, in the bride of Christ, because of the character of Jesus Christ being brought to the individuals in the church, to the bride. And then you have the same thing holds true with this man rule, that he shall rule in, in you. The same thing. It can be abused by the man. And by the way, the man has the greater responsibility. He will receive the greater judgment in this so that if a man abuses his wife, and, you know, of course she's going to react a certain way, but he ultimately is responsible for this because he is commanded in Ephesians to love his wife. There is no such command given to the woman to love her husband anywhere in the scriptures. Did you know that? Nowhere. Husbands, love your wives. You never see anywhere in the Bible where it says, wives, love your husband. That is because if the man loves his wife as Christ loved the church, he's giving himself, giving himself, giving himself. He's dedicated to her well-being. If the man is that to his wife, she will automatically respond out from that man rule thing in her, and she will love him. So she doesn't have to be commanded to. She will do that. That will be something in her that flows out. But the man, because he has the greater responsibility, because he's the one that can really mess things up, the Lord commands him to love his wife. Now, if you have the man doing his part, and that doesn't mean that men will be perfect in marriage. It doesn't mean that at all. They make mistakes. They have faults. They have shortcomings. But if Jesus Christ is lifted up, and the heart is moving toward him, then there will be in the man the desire to please the Lord, hence a dedication to the wife, a love for the wife, and all that will, will uh, flow out and be what it should be. And then you'll have the reciprocal thing between the wife and the husband, and that thing will move and flow the way it should without reciprocal love, marriage fails. If the man is self-centered, it may be only the grace of God that he gives the wife to stay, for her to stay with him. If the wife is self-centered, you have the same basic thing. You have a person who is not giving this recept, um, receptivity, no, 
reciprocal love. And it has to be both ways. And it has to be, as far as the Christian, that has to be flowing out from the Lord to us, etc. So you have two things here. You have the agape love, which is a dedication. Husbands love your wives. And then the reciprocal love comes later in that, I believe that's more in the line of the phileo love, where now you have a, a fondness, you have a friendship, you have all these other things, and you have, I, I'm trying to think of the word, reciprocity? <laughs> it's the reciprocal end back and forth between the two. So back in Genesis here, Paul says in Corinthians, he says, uh, the woman is the glory of what? The man. Why does he say that? See, it all, it's all fits together. The woman is the glory of the man. So in chapter 2 here in Genesis, verse 22, Then the, the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. So the woman can, can be many different things. The woman can be many different things. And you see that in the scriptures. You see, um, she's in, in uh, Proverbs, she's described as being gracious, or she has graciousness. Uh, you see in the book of Ruth, she has worth. It says that it actually uses the word that she is a virtue. Boaz says to her, you are a virtuous woman. And then you see in other places in the Bible, for example, Proverbs, first couple chapters, talks about the adulterous woman. And then you have women in Proverbs who are called wise, or they have the wisdom of God. You have the foolish, you have the fruitful, you have the treacherous, and so forth. So the woman can be many different things. But in the area of marriage... How this is to work is because of the way God has created the woman, what he has done in her. And I don't believe that most women understand this. They don't understand what is going on in them. And I have even said, I heard people say, you know, women, you know, even a woman say, you know, you can't understand us. You can't understand us. Well, that's because they don't even understand themselves. See, but that's not the point. The point is they don't understand what is going on here in them, they will lash out at the man, they will yell at the man, they will even hate the man because, they might not even know, they might say it's because of this, he doesn't do that, or does this, or whatever, but the real root of that is that there's something in them that is not being satisfied, and they know it's not being satisfied, and so they will lash out. See, and the men, men, are worse than the ostrich that has their head buried two foot in the ground. They're totally oblivious to, to everything except, you know, doop, 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 here I am, woo-woo. You know, they're just like out there. They have no idea what goes on here as far as, see, see we need to study the Bible. Sometimes a casual reading of the scriptures doesn't do it. We need to sit there and read it, meditate upon it, Allow the Lord to teach us. See, the man, most men do not understand what goes on in the interior part of their wife, their inner man. And see, if that is not satisfied, 
then things can be pretty rocky at times. But if the man just does the basic things, the ba very basic, love your wife, be dedicated to your wife, show her kindness, don't treat her as if she's some lesser you know, person that you can wipe your shoes on because I am going to rule over you. It says it in Genesis 3. It doesn't say that at all. It doesn't mean that. And so the men miss it. The men mess things up. And then they reap what they've sown. And they wonder why things in their marriage are falling apart. It's because they have no clue. Or it can also be that they don't want to lay their lives down for their wives. They're too interested in their own self-centered pursuits. You know, it's all about me. All about me. Everything's about me. What I want, you know, everything. And they might not say that, but their actions prove it. And when a man is like that, there's problems. There's always problems. He goes do this, he does that. You know, I, I've had, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I have had men I work with invite me to, uh, years ago, two, three, four times this happened, invite me to go with them at a hunting camp for a week or two and, quote, unquote, don't worry, we'll have a great time, we'll play cards, we'll have, you know, booze, we'll drink. And the best part about it is you'll have two weeks away, two weeks away from your old lady. And I told, I've told them, I said, listen, I said, I married my wife because I love her, and I still do. I said, I don't want to get away from her. I said, as a matter of fact, I won't go because I'd rather be with my wife. And it's like, who in the world is this? And see, that's the mentality many times. It's not just about honey. It's to get away from your wife. And see, even if they never tell their wife that, that's still in their heart, and that comes out, that trickles out, that, that self-centeredness, whatever it is there, trickles out throughout the year in the relationship. You can't, you can't get away from it. So that's why it says, husbands, love your wives, and it's a command. It's imperative mood, imperative mood verb. Okay, let's move on down to verse 22. Now, I'm not saying I have all the answers there, but I hope that I've given you enough so that you get a little peek of that. Because if you can see this, even to a small degree, you'll understand some things about your wife. And maybe women will understand a little bit better things about themselves. And that will help you in the relationship to give. See, you, you don't have to know any of this, really. If you know, give. You know, be dedicated to the well-being of your wife. And then she becomes dedicated to you. If you have that, just that alone, you'll navigate things, you know, this, the whole marriage thing pretty well. You'll be okay. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become, excuse me, become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of light and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him. I want to read this and come back. Sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east end of the Garden of Eden, a flaming sword which turned every way to guard uh, the way to the tree of life. How does that verse 24 say in King James? 
Barbie? Oh, Anybody have the King James? So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword was turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. I've heard ministers talk about this verse and say that, you know, you can't get into Eden, you can't get into this place anymore because there is an angel with a flaming sword guarding that area. And that's not really the case here. Verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take. See, so the Lord is saying that the man and the woman need to take of the tree of life. Not that there is an angel there with a flaming sword to keep you away. No, the man and the woman need to take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now remember, initially, there were trees in the garden, and Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the, of the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that was most likely a physical thing. The Lord said, okay, you can have all this to eat, but just one thing here is the only restriction that we have. And of course, that's the way it is. You can tell a kid, you can do anything you want here, but don't touch this over here. And where are they? They're over there, get ready to touch it. That's the way we are. So that area, that particular tree was to be off limits for them. And we know that they actually partook of that. Now you see, because of sin, because of the spiritual separation now between man and God, lest you take also of the tree of light and eat. This is a spiritual thing. It's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual, spiritual thing, unless you take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And therefore God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he came. Now, the purpose here for the flaming sword is to keep the path open. To keep the path of the tree of life open. Now, I have this in Charles Hans. He um, took Hebrew and he said that the reading of this should be a flame of the changing sword. I went to a Bible called the Complete Jewish Bible. I believe it was translated by Jewish Jewish people, not, not uh, theologians as we would think. They, they were you know, Jews who knew the language. And this is how it reads in that Bible. And the blade, or the sword, the blade of the revolving sword to guard the way to the tree of life. So, what is this revolving sword? See, what's going on here? The angel is there to, here's the tree of life. We'll illustrate it this way. There's the tree of life, and now the angel is there with a revolving sword. Not to keep you out, not to keep people out, but the revolving sword is the progressive revelation that must come to man so that he can find his way back to the tree of life. So without revelation of God, we would never find our way back. Initially, when the gospel was first preached to me, I knew nothing. Nothing. I I wasn't saved. But what I saw was a flicker of light. Somehow, some way, I knew that what was being said to me was true and it was the gospel, and I opened the Bible, and I read it, and I believed it, 
And this was the revolving sword of revelation coming to me personally so that I would get a picture of the tree of life and, you know, reach forth and eat. See, that happened to you. It had to happen to you also. So this revolving sword is to keep the way open because the enemy of our soul would like to make that whole area so obscure that man could never find his way back. But God is good, and he places the angel there with this revolving, progressive revelation in order to to bring us to the tree of life initially and also to partake of life continually. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life, and that's not just it, that's initial salvation, and that you might have it more abundantly. Let's go to John 4. See, so there, there is more life that God has for us. In John 4, this is the um, chapter dealing with the Samaritan woman. Jesus meets her at the well, if you'll remember. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So Jesus here is showing her the way to life or the tree of life. What he's saying by the Spirit of God, now causes the Spirit of God, this sword of this progressive revelation, to move in a way now that she sees something. Verse 28. And the woman, now remember, she came out there for what reason? Why did she go to the well? Is it obvious? Well, yeah, right. She went to the well to get water. So that was the whole purpose for her going out there. Now look at verse 28. The woman then left her water pot. (laughs) That's why she went out there, you see. But see, something happened. She saw something. She left her her water pot, went her way into this city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? So you see here, the Lord, by the Spirit of God, opens up the way of life for her. And see, you as a Christian... Uh, when the Lord uses you to witness or to tell someone about Jesus Christ, tell them about the way, tell them about salvation, the Lord can use you as the Spirit of God uses this sword. You know, your word is what? Does the Bible say anything about the word being a sword? Well, the Lord can use you to open up that way to the tree of life. So the whole purpose here, I believe, is different than some people teach. And an old Hebrew paraphrase, this is really good. An old Hebrew paraphrase states, the revolving Shekinah glory. I like that, the revolving Shekinah glory. So that's the purpose behind the angel here, to keep the way open, to keep it open. Okay, now we'll get to chapter 4. Now, chapter 4 here deals with Cain and Abel. And I want to show you something related to Cain's offering. Now, remember, we're going to read it, but you'll remember there were 
two brothers, and they both brought an offering. Cain's offering was of the ground. Abel's offering was a blood sacrifice. Which one did the Lord accept? The blood sacrifice. But that's not why the Lord accepted it. I've heard that taught many times too. That, oh, because Cain, he brought you know, the, the, the fruit of the ground and the Lord wants a blood sacrifice. Well, the Lord does want a blood sacrifice, but I want to show you something. Let's read these verses first. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Well, she was mistaken. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of, the, of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fell? From a very quick reading of this, it would seem that the animal sacrifice here that Abel brought was, was better. But hold your place there and go to Leviticus. Where did I see that? Um, oh, yes, verse 3. Remember here it says that, that Cain brought the first fruits of the ground to the Lord for an offering. That's verse 3, chapter 4. Okay, now in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1. When anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it, and put frankincense on it. He shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, one of whom shall take... Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Okay. He shall bring it to Aaron's son, the priest, one of whom shall take from it his handful of fine flour and oil with all the frankincense. And the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire. And look at this a sweet aroma to the Lord. So this is a grain offering here. This is not a blood sacrifice. This is a grain offering, and it says here that this fine flour would be a sweet aroma to the Lord. Verse 11, No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in the offering to the Lord made by fire. So in, let me see here. In verse 2, the fine flour here is a type. There's a typology here. The fine flour is referring here that the individual is to have nothing coarse within their nature to mar their character. There, there's, this is to be a, there is to be a purifying, just like you take flour and you sift flour. There is to be a, a purifying here. That's why it doesn't say a grain, it says fine grain. So that there is, um, there is nothing coarse there. See, there can be something coarse in the nature of an individual that will cause a person to sin against God. So, first of all, you have the fine flour. Verse 11 it says, no grain offering, 
which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. Uh, then he goes on and says, For you shall not, uh, you shall burn no leaven nor any honey. Why, why not leaven or honey? You know, honey turns sour if you, if you leave it long enough. Not the stuff processed, the stuff we have. It's talking about the fermentation process. And that's a type of corruption. It's a type of corruption pointing to the nature of sin. The corruption in the heart. So, it wasn't that Cain's offering was rejected because it wasn't a blood sacrifice. It's because that he didn't offer it with a pure heart, a pure character, a, a heart that was not marred, uh, a heart that was not in sin. Rather, he, he offered that, so to speak, with the honey, the fermentation, speaking of the old nature, sin in the life. And so you see that in one small phrase here, verse 5. Look at verse 5. We're back in Genesis 4. Well, let's go back to 4. Abel also brought of the first, uh, firstborn of the flock and of the fat, and the Lord respected Abel. You see what it says? The Lord respected Abel and his offering. So the point here is that the Lord was looking at the heart of Abel before he was looking at what Abel brought. Because Abel's heart was pure before the Lord, hence his offering, even though it was a blood sacrifice, had that same quality because it was given with the correct heart. Now let's read on. But, verse 5, God did not respect Cain, and his offering. See, he didn't respect Cain because of the marring of sin in his life, and and his his heart was not uh, moving toward the Lord, if you want to say it that way, like Abel's was. Cain may have brought a grain offering to the Lord, but he didn't bring the best of his life to the Lord. And that's why he was rejected, not because it was a grain offering. Verse 7, the Lord says to Cain, after Cain gets angry, if you do well, or another way to say that is if you do what's right, if you do well, will you not be accepted? See, it has nothing to do with the grain offering or the animal offering. It's, it's his heart condition. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And I had that here. I thought I put that in my notes. I wanted to write down what the, this interlinear said because it was very good. It said that sin, if I can remember, if you, do, if you, if you are not doing well, that's what it says, if you're not doing well, sin Probably is... It might have been crouching, but it was sin is at the portal, was the, the, the word used. And the portal can be more than a door. It's just a, it can be a, you know, quite a, an opening to something destructive. Because remember, when Adam and Eve first sinned, it really didn't look, if you even examine that, just what they did, it didn't really seem too bad. I mean, you know, 
it didn't seem in the context that it was really all that big of a deal, but yet it was. God knows the ramifications of sin. He knows the result of sin. Adam and Eve did not know, nor did they see, what was going to be resulting from this sin. And it's not too much longer to where now sin, you know, raises its ugly head and Cain kills Abel. So we have, I don't know how many years span there, not that many. We're not talking about 100 years or anything. You have a very short time where sin now uh, and death comes into the world through Adam and Eve. Now that sin and death actually manifests itself in murder. And, you know, murder's pretty bad. Murder's pretty bad. I mean, if you take, and I know all sin is bad, but murder, I mean, that's quite telling of what's in the heart. So in verse 6, you see here, I just want to point this other thing out to you. In verse 6, God says to Cain, you know, why are you angry? Anger can be the seed of murder. Now, not all anger ends up in murder, but a lot of times people end up killing other people because of their wrath, their anger, and it just takes, uh, takes over, and they just you know, do some crazy thing and end up killing someone. And there's actually another example here uh, somewhere in chapter 4, uh, verse 23. This is one of the descendants of Cain. Uh, his name is Lamech. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and, and Zillah, Hear my voice, wives of Lamech. Listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. It wasn't premeditated, I guess you could use that word, like Cain was with Abel. Here he became angry because someone did something to him, hurt, hurt him maybe probably physically, and then he lashes out and kills them. So you see it's not too long now through the um, generations that now you're seeing murder. And that's, this is only recording one. There may have been others elsewhere. But it's just showing us something that sin has dire consequences. And we think many times that sin is okay. I mean, a little sin's not going to hurt anybody. It's because we don't understand. We don't see. Now, it may not result in someone's physical death, but it may actually result in someone's spiritual death because what a person says, how they act, what they do, can influence another individual in such a great way that they can actually become spiritually dead. They'll just walk away from God. And I've seen this where where people, because of what they say, they put some doubt or some fear in the ear of another and cause that individual to leave the church or leave, leave God and back off and, and go their own way. So it, it does happen. Okay, verse 11. So this is after the Lord talks to Cain. And then he says, So now... You are cursed from the earth. Now, I want to say this. As far as I can see, there is nowhere here where God curses man. He curses the ground. He curses Satan. 
you know, in that he, he has a judgment upon Satan. But this here leads us to believe that God is cursing um, Cain for what he did. But let's read it a little closer, and I want to read it from another translation. So now you are cursed from the earth. See, you are not, God is not saying you are cursed, but here's, here's a better way to say it. Now you are under a curse, which was true. And the reason why I say that, we'll see in, in the next verse. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Verse 12. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. See, so the, the subject here in verse 11 and 12 is not a curse upon Cain, but it's the curse that he will be under because God cursed the ground, so the ground will not yield the way it once did. And there's an individual, you know, we can have as the focus of our heart many different things, I mean, even as Christians. And there's a, a fellow who accepted the Lord many years ago that I know. And his big thing has always been gardening. He's loved to garden, and he's very good at it. And he'll go out and have this quest for the best hoe that, you know, they make. Or some other implement to do gardening. He'll go and he'll buy ten of them. Ten different ones from ten different stores. And then he'll try them all out. And then when he finds the one that he believes is the best, he takes all the rest of them back. <laughs> because he wants to garden with the best, what he likes, you know, so forth. But he's, he's, al- he's always, since I've known him, you know, that's been his... And he said to me one time about you know, God cursing the ground. He says that he can't wait someday to you know, be in heaven, be on the other side and be able to garden. And he believes that the ground will, will yield, you know, tremendous amounts of vegetables and fruit. And see, that's, that's his thinking because that's what's in his heart. That's what he likes. And what is missing there is a heart that wants God, not wants to know about him. Because he knows about a lot of different things in the Bible, a lot of stories in that. But as far as a heart that really desires the Lord, that's different. See, I would rather have a heart that desires the Lord than to have Bible knowledge. Because knowing things in the Bible, the purpose of that is to point us to Jesus. Point us to him. That's the purpose behind it. The tree of life. You know, receiving more life. And so anything can be a focus for us. Anything. It doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for two years or 52 years, you can still have your heart moving towards some other direction. In verse 12, just the last point here, from the interlinear scriptural analyzer that I use, it says this, that you are serving, speaking of Cain, you are serving the ground because of the God cursed the ground. So it would make it hard. And if you tried to garden, you know, you, you end up seeing more weeds sometimes than you do plants. I mean, you have to learn some things to garden now. You just can't plant something and it's going to, you know, usually doesn't work out too well. 
Okay, now, still continuing on with Cain. Verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod. This speaks volumes, this verse, because it shows you the heart of Cain. The Lord said to Cain that if you do well, will you not be accepted? So it's, the Lord is just putting that out there for him. That listen, I will accept you and your offering just like I did Abel's if you do well. So sin has affected Cain in such a way that he is not so interested now in the Lord. Abel was interested in the Lord. That's why he was accepted. Cain was not too interested in the Lord, and his life is moving in a different way. That is why he went out from the presence of the Lord. The Lord didn't kick him out. Now he, you know, Adam and Eve had long before this left Garden of Eden. The Lord wanted Cain to do well so that he would be accepted. But Cain had no interest in God, and you see this today. A lot of people have no interest in the Lord, right? There are Christians who have little interest in the Lord. They may go to church. They may occasionally read the Bible. But they're more interested in going to church, getting in, getting out, getting home, watching football, or doing whatever they want to do. And there is no lasting impact by the Spirit of God in their heart and life. See, because if the Lord touches you, He really touches you, that will impact your life and impact your heart in such a way that... These other things, I mean, you may do this, you may do that, and that's fine. But it not, it's not a focus for your heart anymore. I mean, the Lord becomes so much bigger in your heart and life. It's not, not about being legalistic. It's more about being you know, in relationship. And so he becomes a bigger part of the picture as far as you're concerned. And so Cain... He leaves the presence of the Lord. The Lord is here and he's saying, Cain, if you do well, if you do what is right, you'll be accepted. Okay, 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 Cain. Cain leaves the presence of the Lord and he dwells in the land of Nod. What's the land of Nod? Do you know what the land of Nod is? That word means wandering. He dwelt in the land of wandering. And you see mankind today dwelling in the land of wandering. They're just, they're wandering about. They're, you know, doing this, doing that. Their focus is this, their focus is that. And they wander about without true satisfaction. They wander about without true knowledge of God. In, they wonder about without true purpose for their lives. And that is a place that Cain, who knew better, see, he knew better because the Lord did speak to him and communicate to him. He knew better. But it was his choice to go away from the presence of the Lord and to wander the earth, to wander 
And, and the wandering is not so much a geographical thing as it is an internal thing. You wander away from God to where you don't understand things, you don't see things anymore in, in spirit. You know, it's just, and any Christian can make, I believe, the same decision as Cain did to walk away from the presence of the Lord. Now, of course, now we haven't done that, and we don't plan to do that. But I'm saying that a Christian can do that. You can walk away from the presence of the Lord and enter into the land of wandering. And this is very significant, I believe, because in verse 17 here, we're going to see something, and I'm going to look at this later, not tonight, but maybe next week, because as I'm following this through here in these chapters, I'm starting to see uh, how humanity is starting. What's going on? What bloodline certain tribes and things in the Bible that we read about come from? And I'm going to show you that next week. Very significant. But look at this in verse 17. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Now, this is not the Enoch that was translated, by the way. The one that was translated, I believe, was Jared's son. That was um, of the godly line. This here is the lineage of Cain. And Cain, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Now, what is significant about this is now you see he walked away from God. Cain walked away from the presence of the Lord. He was wandering. And now he's going to build a city. Now, the city that is built here is not going to be uh, the reflection of the spirit. Uh, how can I say it? It's not going to be, it's not going to be representative of the spirit or a godly line. It's going to be representative of Cain and the ungodly seed that are going to settle this area, in this city. And I haven't checked this completely, but I believe that the lineage of Cain stops, as far as the biblical record of it, uh, it stops after so many generations, and it's not that far down the line. And no one in that line is a godly seed where you see that, that Christ, the lineage of Christ come from. So he left the presence of the Lord, and he, they built a city. Okay, verse 23, verse 19, just want to point this out, then we'll move on here. Verse 29 says, Then Lamech, this is of the seed of Cain here, took for himself two wives. In verse 23, Then Lamech said to his two wives. So this is the first time in the Bible where you see polygamy. And you see it in the, God, uh, the ungodly line, starting off there. And I did teach a whole class on polygamy. It was the first Samuel class, the first class that I taught, if anybody's interested in, if that's something you want to look into. Okay, in verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God had appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. So you have Cain over here and his descendants. Now they're in, in this city that they build. Now you're seeing something different. Now the Lord gives 
Adam and Eve another child, and his name is Seth. Verse 26, and as for Seth, to him also uh, a son was born, and he, he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So another way to say this is then men began to trust in the Lord. So you see here things beginning to shape up. You see the ungodly, and they're in this area. And now the Lord is going to raise up a godly seed, and we're going to see that with Noah. Noah had three sons, but only one of the sons will the godly seed continue in. The other two, even though they had the same opportunities as did um, Shem, they did not avail themselves of the opportunity and the witness and example of their father Noah. And so the beginning of the human race is seen here in where they settled and where they begin to expand as far as population. And you can remember this, and I'll say this again next week. You see this remnant in the scriptures. You, you'll catch a glimpse of it here and there, uh, for example, uh, with Elijah when he calls down fire and kills the prophets of Baal. And he thought that all, all, everybody was going to receive him because of this great miracle. And here, Ahab and Jezebel, they try to kill Elijah. So he runs away, and he's you know, sulking before the Lord, saying he's the only one that you know, is there, and he did everything the Lord wanted him to do. And, and here I am, and they're, they're seeking my life. And God puts the stop to it. And he says, I have, I think he said 3,000 men. Is that what it was? 3,000 or 5,000 men that are called by my name. And so even though you see nothing more about them, still that points to the remnant. And you'll see that throughout, especially the Old Testament. You, it carries on into the New Testament also. But there's always a remnant. So even though you have the godly seed, you have uh, the spreading of all these tribes uh, and people that don't know the Lord, don't call on the name of the Lord, are not interested in the Lord, still there's always a remnant, a small amount, that you can see that thread passing through the scriptures where God has a faithful people. They're, they're never wiped out, never. There's always someone or a group. With Noah, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but with Noah, there was only how many? Eight. Eight. And we're talking about quite a hefty population at that time, too. So there was the remnant there. And then when you have them come out, you have two of the sons seek their own. They, they seek after their own things, and they're not seeking after God, and you have one son that does. But you still, you'll still have that, that remnant maintained there. So at this time, we're seeing here in uh, chapter 4, verse 26, that men began to call on the name of the Lord. Men became recognized as either those who called on the name of the Lord or those who did not call upon the name of the Lord. That's why you see that there in the scripture. Because they're, all you see now were the descendants of Cain, and they weren't calling upon the name of the Lord. We're now... This descendant, Seth, 
his descendant, you see the godly seed now, and they're calling upon the name of the Lord, or they are doing something different. Now you see the contrast between saved and unsaved, uh, those who call upon the name of the Lord, those who don't, those who serve the Lord, and those who don't, however you want to say it. So the contrast now is drawn. Okay, chapter 5, and I'll just mention this, and I can't read Hebrew, but I can give you principles, even though I don't know the exact wording of the Hebrew. I'll, I'll give you what the word, a couple of these words say, mean. And there is a, a dual meaning, I believe, and that's you, not usually, but a lot of times that's the, the case with many words and many scriptures. There's more than one. There is the context and the initial meaning of, of it in a context. But the Lord can take it out of the context and he can shine a light on it in such a way to show you another area of truth. So here now when you go into chapter 5, you have the, the genealogy of Adam. And it goes all the way down the line here. And then it comes to uh, verse 20. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived, and that, that was um, verse 18. Jared lived 162 years, and he begot, or he fathered, Enoch. And Enoch lived, 65, um, Enoch lived 60, 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years, and he had sons and daughters. So in verse 22, it says, Enoch walked with God... And then verse 24, it says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And that means he was translated. You know that, right? Enoch was translated. You know what translated means? It doesn't mean like he's translated into another language, you know. He was taken. He's translated from the earth to heaven. Just like Elijah. You remember how Elijah was taken? He was taken... In a whirlwind, a, ch a chariot took him. He never died physically. They believe Enoch, had, uh, he, he never died either. But I wanted to just show you this here. The word not here <coughs> means nothing. If you would look that up, and I did, and one of the meanings is nothing. Now, let's just read the verse with that word inserted. And Enoch walked with God, and he was nothing. <laughs> Now, you want to walk with God, and you want to be someone in God, and be nothing. That's right. He that humbles himself shall be exalted. So you don't worry about the exaltation, you just humble yourself. So you be nothing. So Enoch walked with God, and he was nothing, and God took him. Here you have, I believe, this dual meaning that the character of the man of God is to be, in his heart, low, low, low. The best thing for us to do is to get as low as we can possibly get. And if we can't get low enough, because sometimes we're not capable of going any lower, you can assure that if you want, God will help you. He'll humble you. He'll bring a circumstance in your life and... You know, there you go, there's your opportunity. And this has happened to me many times. 
and I'm thinking of one that happened some years ago, and there's been quite a few after that, but I like it because the Lord tests you in it to see if you really know where you are as far as your heart. See, you might not know where your heart is. You may think you're low, and your heart may be lifted up a little higher than you think, or maybe lifted up a lot higher than you think. I was working many years ago, and <clears throat> did something, and this guy came over, and he got in my face, and, you know, he was ready to, to punch me out. And I did, did really did nothing to provoke that, but when he did, I just looked down and just looked away and, you know, just let him rant, and then he settled down, he went his way. And so th- this was not just him and I. There was a bunch of people standing around the same area there. And the guy had, a, I believe, a, a problem with, with anger. And so it was maybe, I don't know, 10 years later, I would say. I, I have no idea. Maybe, maybe 10 years later, 8 years later. Lo and behold, the guy comes into this church. And, and I, this is when I was working up in Warndale. He comes into the church. He gets saved. And I don't know if he got saved here, but he, he responded. He went, went up front to the altar. Uh, I think his wife was with him. And afterward, the first thing he did was he came over to me and apologized to me. And I said, for what? I totally forgot about the whole thing. I, I had no memory of it. That, that's, the Lord's good. <laughs> you know, sometimes we think about things, and then it gets in our heart, and we start to get a little chip on our shoulder towards somebody. Or, you know, we get this attitude or, we're, or we, we have this unforgiveness towards somebody. But I was totally oblivious because it didn't, it didn't affect me then. And so he starts apologizing. I said, I said what, what, did, uh, we, what happened? I don't, he said, do you remember? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. I said, well, for me, it was no big deal. He said, well, yeah, but I remember that. And he says, and I should have never done that. It was not right. And he's going on and on. I said, standing up here listening to him. I said, okay, 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 okay. Well, see, that situation was an opportunity for me to react one way or another. Just like when the one individual uh, at work one day <clears throat> decides he wants to mock me out on the work floor. And so he, he, it's kind of funny. But he grabs this mop, he sticks it in a bucket, he goes, says, ring it wet, doesn't ring it out, and he starts slapping it across the floor. says, here's your gospel, preach it, preach it, flip it everywhere. And he's going... Go preach it, preach it, tell Percy, go preach it. He's, I'm just standing there laughing and la- I was grinning at him. And I was upset that he stopped because I was enjoying it. Not the, the antics of it, but I, I was enjoying that he saw the Lord because I had witnessed to him before, told him about the Lord. And so I just was, yeah, okay, this is great, until he stopped. And then the individual who another time came, walked past me, and spit in my face, and the Lord said, in my spirit, can you receive that? Well, see, we don't really know what we can handle, what we can have. What's in you? Is it the old nature thing still? Or do you want something new? Do you want something new, or is it just church? Church, you just say, well, okay, as long as it doesn't happen to me, I'll respond to the Lord. You know, big thing hanging from your face. There it's dripping. Straight down. Gooey and ooh, you know. 
So I got a paper towel and wiped my face. And I was grinning the whole time. I said, Lord, I must be crazy. I must be crazy. But I'm enjoying these things. Well, see, this is another opportunity for the Lord to get you down. Now, you might not experience those things, but I guarantee you, if you want the Lord, he'll bring something, maybe not like that, but something little. Something little. You say, well, okay, you're going to rise up, or are you going to, in your heart, just going to... Enoch walked with God. What do you think that is? What do you think that means? Oh, um, oh hi, Lord. I'm, oh, I was walking with you. That doesn't, that's not it. Walking with God means that you are going to be tested and tried. Not, not, maybe not some horrific thing, but to see what is in you, to see how you respond. And if you do respond incorrectly, now you know, okay, Lord, I see this. Now I want to respond correctly. So maybe the next time when somebody at work wants to get your goat, you won't have any goats to get. They won't be able to touch you. Oh, I'm going to go get that guy's goat. He don't have any. No matter what you do, he just smiles. He can't get your goat. Well, I'll tell you what. It'll take a, a work of the Spirit in our life. See, what, what's Christianity all about? It's coming to church? No. No. See, there has to be more, and the Lord wants to test not in, in some, it's, a test is not a negative thing. It's not a negative thing. That the trying of your faith works endurance. See, there's positives here. Positives. And by the way, when these things happen, I have been a Christian now for a long time. Maybe, maybe 30 years when that happened. 30 plus years. So it's not like the Lord, you're a young Christian and you get all these things. Well, he might give you some things. I had some things when I was younger, believe me. But see, either you want the Lord or you don't. Either you want to become nothing, walk with God and become nothing, or you don't. Now, as far as I'm concerned, these are the elements of the the true gospel of Jesus Christ that will place the character of Jesus Christ in you. See, that's what we want. That's what I want. I don't know about you. I want to stand, first of all, before the Lord someday, as pure as possible, my, in my heart and my life, pure, pure, pure. And I want to stand before the Lord with as much of the character of Jesus Christ that he can place in me in this life, however, however much that is. Now, I can see the Lord has done some things over the years in my life, and I'm very, very thankful for that. I'm very thankful for the multitude of opportunities that he's given me to, okay, you can do this, you can do that. And then when I fail, he brings the thing around again later on and, and said, okay, here it is. Okay, now you passed. So the Lord's good. Remember, the children of Israel, when they were in the wilderness, when they, were, they left Egypt, they were in the wilderness, and there's a mountain range to the, the east of pa- I don't want to say Palestine, east of where Israel is now. I think it's near the, um, the Dead Sea in that area. But the Israelites went around this mountain. mountain this mountain range, big mountain range. Went around that mountain range. And we don't know how many times they did that. Round and round. They, may have, they were there 40 years. 
they may have gone around the same mountain range ten, 10 times or five times. We don't know. But see, we can march around the same thing in our life over and over and over again and never get any closer to the promised land. So it's going to take, I believe, the willingness on our part. Lord, I, I want you. And then it will take the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about the circumstance or the opportunity. Then it will take, again, a willingness from us and the Holy Spirit helping us in that. But it's, it's, it's good. I wouldn't trade some of these things for anything. It's like when I went on a mission field, some of the things that happened on a mission field were unbelievable, but they were believable. You know, this, I'll just share this one thing with you. I've probably shared this with you before, but I went on the mission field the first time, and, and I knew the Spirit of God just was really strong upon me to go. And I knew that somewhere along the way, the Lord was going to test me. But I had no idea that he was going to put me through the ringer. And so I'll just make this very short. So we had to go to the other side of the country, and we had to get on this bus. And it was a, it was a quote, unquote, Greyhound bus, but it's not like a Greyhound bus that you would think. And so we get on this bus, and there was only three Americans, and all the rest were nationals. And so we were the last ones getting on the bus. And just so happened, now see, I say that just so happened, it means that the Lord had planned this. So it just so happened that there was only one seat left on the bus. Now these buses are not too good a shape. And the seat that was left, I thought, okay, I'll sit in that. And I wasn't sitting near the one individual who knew the language. And so I sat on the bus. And you know when people sit on the bus, what seats do they sit in? The best seats, don't they? We always go for the best seats. Well, I sat in this seat, and the back of the seat was broken. And we had a four-hour ride through, I mean, windy, 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 mountainous roads. They were paved, but there were no guardrail, two, three, four-hundred-foot drop-offs. And the bus driver must have had some reason to get to the other side of the country really fast because even the people that rode these buses all the time were in fear. You could see it. They were, <gasps> it was just, there was the fear of, throughout the whole bus. And every time we'd go down the road and do a horseshoe, they had all horseshoe bends. He'd slam on the brake, I'd fly up. He'd hit the gas, I'd fly back. I'd fly up, I'd fly back. And I, I had the biggest grin on my face. I was just loving this because I said, oh my goodness, I've only been in the country for three hours and look at this already. <laughs> so I was enjoying it, if you understand what I'm saying. I was enjoying this because I knew I had the presence of God was, was just right there. And the people were in tremendous fear, and I was just in rest, total rest. And, and I, some of the things that happened on that drive were unbelievable, unbelievable. It was just, I could not believe it. <laughs> but it was, it was believable because the Lord put me in that, put me in that seat. So I had to, after a while, I had to like hang on to the seat or whatever. So when he'd go down, I'd go like, and then I'd go back, I'd go flying up this way. So... 
this was an opportunity, you see, for the Lord to work in my life. So, you know, do we want the Lord to work in our life or don't we? Do we want the Lord to put things in us or don't we? See, what do we want as Christians? Will you suffer in a situation like that and not complain and enjoy it because you know you're in the will and purpose of God? Well, I'll tell you, when I experienced some of these things, it's like, oh, wow. I mean, I, was, I, wasn't, I can't say I wasn't glad when it was over. <laughs> but in it, it was just like, the presence of God was just so, for me. And I just had a big grin on my face the whole time. And at any minute, we could have plunged to our death. Any minute. That's how, how crazy the ride was. But see, will we allow the Lord in our life to do some things? Now, I don't know what it might be for you, but I'll tell you what. You will experience things that you never have before, and they will be really, really, really good. See, you will sense the Lord in it, and it will be, wow, really good.